We continue this evening in our series through the book of Exodus. Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. And listen as I begin reading at verse 20 all the way to chapter 9 and verse 12. The fourth, fifth, and sixth plagues. Exodus 8, beginning at verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. And say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so. The offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field. The horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt. 
and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. This is God's word. Let's ask for his help as we study it on Would you pray now, O oh God, for your assistance in the preaching and in the hearing of the exposition of your word? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As I said last week, I've decided to break up the ten plagues narrated into at least four sermons. The plan is still to take the first nine plagues in three sermons, three at a time, and then spend one sermon on the last plague before we transition into the actual Exodus narrative as the Israelites leave Egypt. And so this is the sermon on the fourth, fifth, and sixth plagues after covering one, two, and three last week. Last week, in looking at the first three plagues, we saw that the extent of God's superiority over the gods of Egypt was the main focus of that section of the narrative. It was developing the idea which had already been introduced in the staff to snake uh, section, that God is superior to the gods of Egypt, and that God's power swallows up the power of the Egyptian gods. Last week advanced that idea, that concept. Tonight we will see that the revelation of God as a God who makes a distinction between his people and the people of Egypt. That is the main focus of the next three plagues. But before we get into that main idea, I want to play a tour guide again and point out a few things as we go. First, just a couple of notes in terms of making coherent sense of the passage. Uh, one thing you may notice is that there seems to be this discussion about just taking a temporary journey into the wilderness to make sacrifices, as opposed to let us go forever in order that we might inherit the land of Canaan and be out of Egyptian bondage for all time. The way that it is being discussed back and forth between Moses and Pharaoh is that the Israelites must go, according to 827, three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to God as he tells us. This is what Moses is explicitly asking for. And so Pharaoh says, okay, well you can sacrifice, but you can only do so in the land. But commentators point out the reasonableness of Moses' response that these this would be abominable to the Egyptians, the sort of things that they would sacrifice, the, the sheep and so forth, um, were held in esteem by the Egyptians. And so one commentator says that it would be like having a pig roast outside a Jewish synagogue, or it would be like having a barbecue of beef outside of a Hindu temple. And so doing this in the land would actually probably incite the ire, the anger of the Egyptians if they were to do so within the land, especially when tensions are already high and there's a 
most likely a hatred for the Israelites as this plague narrative is escalating and developing and tensions are high within the land. This would not be a wise idea. Perhaps it's actually Pharaoh's desire that they go ahead and start sacrificing abominable sacrifices in the land and then the Egyptians actually do break out in war upon the Israelites. Uh, in any case, what seems to be being explicitly discussed is going temporarily three days into the wilderness to sacrifice. Now there are two schools of thought in terms of why this is what's being explicitly discussed. The first is that uh, understatement is part of bargaining in ancient times in this area of the world. You'll remember uh, back in Genesis when Abraham was negotiating about the uh, plot of land in Genesis chapter 23. And um, in Genesis chapter 23 and verse 6, the Hittites answer Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. And then Mo, or Abraham answers, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. So Abraham begins by just asking for a small little cave. And as it goes on, eventually he comes to own the whole field, including the field. One school of thought is that this is kind of a polite way of bargaining, and that Moses is using euphemistic understatement. Uh, let us go a few days out into the wilderness, when really both he and Pharaoh know they ain't coming back. That's one school of thought. Um, what I think is actually more persuasive is the second school of thought, which is this. If all that is really being discussed is a vacation, and Pharaoh won't even give them a vacation, and Pharaoh is hardening his heart, even in the face of all these plagues, merely over the idea of the Israelites taking a week or two to leave the land, make some sacrifices, and then come back. It only serves to show even that much more just how hard-hearted he is, just how unreasonable he is, just how unyielding his unbelief. To me, that makes more sense. And so it's... Um, the ask is really in the beginning just for a temporary leave of absence to go make these sacrifices. But as the narrative builds in tension, it culminates with the Egyptians driving the people out from the land. And Pharaoh saying to Moses, I never want to see your face again. And so the Israelites say, okay, no problem. We're gone and we're not coming back. And then the Exodus narrative ensues. So that's one note as we go through. Another is, um, we have another difficulty in making coherent sense of the passage. As I said last week, there are statements in the Ten Plagues narrative that are hard to make coherent sense of, notwithstanding a supernatural worldview. So obviously if someone adopts a very naturalistic worldview, none of this is plausible. No miracles can happen, therefore this whole thing is myth. But even if you grant a supernatural worldview that miracles can happen, there are things that are just hard to make sense of. 
For example, last week we saw that there was a difficulty in understanding how the sorcerers of Egypt could replicate the two miracles first of turning water to blood if all the water was already blood. And second, how they could make frogs come up to cover the land if frogs already covered the land. I believe we were able to solve, resolve those satisfactorily last week. But tonight there's another difficulty. In Exodus chapter 9 and verse 6, we read that all the livestock of the Egyptians died. This is no problem in itself, but we read in 9.19 and following that God sends a plague of hail to destroy all of Egypt's livestock, along with whoever and whatever else is in the fields. Then in Exodus 11, God strikes the firstborn, including the firstborn of cattle, according to Exodus 11.5. So how is it that there is livestock after the disease in 9.1-6, and after the hail of 9.19-26? How is it that there is any livestock left of whom the firstborn may be killed in chapter 11? As I said last week, I remember vividly sitting in a hot tub with my wife and a friend of ours who was an unbeliever and listening as he mocked the trustworthiness of the Bible in light of apparent absurdities like this. And I think for his sake and for the sake of others like him, as well as for the strengthening and buttressing of our own confidence in the scripture that it's worth addressing these kind of issues head on as we make our way through the text. And I don't think that this particular difficulty is as insurmountable as my friend made it out to be. There are two plausible possibilities for resolving this particular issue. First, Exodus chapter 9 and verse 3 says explicitly that the disease will strike all of the livestock that are, quote, in the field. Some commentators believe that the disease was confined to the animals who were out grazing and did not affect those held in pens and barns throughout the land of Egypt. You might say, well, that's not how disease works. Well, disease normally doesn't distinguish between Egypt and the land of Goshen either. We're talking about a divine uh, plague here and not just a natural communicable disease. So that is one plausible resolution. Another is that the all refers to all without distinction as opposed to all without exception. This is well within the accepted usage of the word all. Did the plague kill sheep? Yes. Did it kill camels? Yes. Did it kill cattle? Yes. What other kinds of livestock did it kill? It killed all. Then as for the hail, it explicitly says, that the hail killed only those livestock not brought into safe shelter in 9.19. Therefore, however you want to resolve this, it is not at all implausible that some livestock survived both the disease, which was the fifth plague, as well as the hailstorm, which was the seventh, and experienced that judgment upon the firstborn in the tenth. So let's move on after clearing that away, trusting that we are on solid ground here, believing the record as it's presented to us in the scriptures. Next, as your tour guide, I want to point out one more thing about 
how the fourth leg corresponds to an Egyptian god. I said last week that I wasn't going to do that every time, even though apparently each and every play does correspond to a specific Egyptian god. I gave you a couple of examples of that last week and said I wasn't going to keep that up all the way through. But after studying this week, I couldn't help uh, resist, I couldn't resist sharing with you about how the fourth play corresponds to an Egyptian god. Are you ready for something crazy? This just about knocked me off my chair while I was studying this week when I read it. Okay, listen. According to Philip Riken, Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. Some Egyptians worship Beelzebub as their protector and guardian from swarms of flies and other natural disasters. Now, if you're not very familiar with the Bible, Beelzebub is called in the Gospels the prince of the demons by the Pharisees. And Jesus does not challenge that conception. So Beelzebub is presented to us in the Gospels much later on, obviously, in the, the unfolding story of the Scripture. But Beelzebub is, put, is presented to us in the Gospels as Satan himself. And here we are way back in Genesis seeing then God and Satan in direct conflict in the fourth play. Let me repeat another lengthy quote from Riken, which I read to you a couple of weeks ago. The great confrontation in Egypt was not simply a dispute between Moses and Pharaoh, or a conflict between Israel and Egypt, but a battle between God and Satan. In his exposition of the life of Moses, James Boyce explained that this battle pitted Jehovah, the true God who moved Moses and Israel, against the false gods of the Egyptian pantheon, backed by a host of fallen angels who had turned away from God as part of Lucifer's original rebellion. Thus, the Exodus was another engagement in the invisible war that continually rages between heaven and hell. End quote. If Beelzebub is Lord of the Flies in the Egyptians' eyes, then when God sends swarms of flies upon the land of Egypt, it is therefore a direct assault on Beelzebub, who is Satan. It is a very direct instance of what I have been teaching you and unfolding to you already over these last couple chapters of God's power swallowing up, dwarfing, utterly overwhelming what limited power Satan does in fact have and has been permitted to hold. Anyway, with those, all of those subsidiary things that I think are worth mentioning as we make our way through, with those things out of the way, let's move on to the main revelation of God that we have in this passage, which is, as I said at the beginning, that God is a God who makes a distinction between his own people and the people of Egypt. We see this first in the repetition of the phrase, let my people go, in 8.20 and 21. My people, my people. This is not the first time that this phrase has appeared in the narrative, 
But here it is again, and it will be developed in this section of the Ten Plagues narrative. In 8, 22 and 23, Yahweh says, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of yours. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people, Yahweh says to them. And again in 9.4, we read, But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. You can see it so clearly. In the fourth and fifth plagues, God is clearly intent on revealing himself as a God who makes a distinction between those who are his people and those who are not his people. You can't miss it in the fourth and fifth plague. God says it explicitly in the text. But also in the sixth plague, God is intent on making the same thing clear. Both John Curran and Tony Morita and a number of other commentators believe that the kiln mentioned in chapter 9, verses 8 and 10, is the brick-making furnace where the Israelites labored under the oppressive hand of Pharaoh. God says, take some soot from the kiln. Not just take some soot from a kiln. Go find a kiln somewhere and get some soot from it. There is a reference that Moses and Aaron would have understood which kiln is meant. Go get some soot from the kiln. From that place where Pharaoh oppresses you and makes you work to make bricks, and most recently, bricks without straw. Get some soot from there. And as it's thrown up in the air and becomes boils on everyone, God is sending a message. You have messed with my people, and now you will answer to me. I will afflict you for the affliction that you have caused my people. You see what's happening there? God is siding with the brick makers, not the slave drivers. And God is signifying to them that their slave driving is going to be avenged. In this section, fourth, fifth, and sixth plagues, there is an intensification from the finger of God in 8.19, where the magicians say, this is the finger of God. There is an intensification from the finger of God in 8.19 to the hand of God in 9.3. And God's hand is raised against whom? Against those who are not his people. And God's hand is raised on behalf of whom? On behalf of those who are his people. The magicians who recognized, who saw with their eyes the finger of God have now felt the hand of God come down hard and heavenly. 
stay upon them. So that 9-11 tells us that they cannot even come and stand before Moses because of the boils with which God has afflicted them. Those who saw the finger of God have felt the hand of God and are now essentially forced to take sick leave. They can't even stand there. They've, it's been a while since they've been able to copy and replicate what Moses and Aaron are doing by divine power, but they can't even stand there and put on a great face. They can't even appear in the court anymore because the hand of God has come down heavily upon them. Those who have trusted in other gods have discovered that their confidence was ill-founded. As it is Yahweh, the God of Israel, who is God above all other gods. And so what we are seeing now is God making clear that he is with the Israelites, that he owns them for his people, and that his hand is against Egypt as well as his gods. Now, why does God favor the Israelites over the Egyptians? Is it because there's anything impressive in them? Listen to Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. This is God speaking to Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people. In other words, it's not because you were an impressive, mighty nation that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And in case I wasn't clear enough, listen to Deuteronomy 9, verses 1 to 6. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today, to go into dispossessed nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakin, for you know, and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly, as the Lord has promised you. Now listen, do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. 
for you are stubborn people. So why does God favor the Israelites over the Egyptians? Is it because there is anything impressive in them? We must answer with an emphatic no. Rather, God favors them, as he says in Deuteronomy 9.5, which I just read, that he may confirm the word of the Lord that he spoke, pardon me, that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God wants the Egyptians to know that they are not his people. That's clear from our text. It's clear that God wants them to understand that he makes a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. But God wants his own to know that there is nothing special in them, which is the basis of his preferring them and favoring them over those who are not his people. There is nothing special in them which caused God to set his love upon them. For they were an unimpressive and in fact, as he says here, a stubborn people. This is some of what we see in our text tonight. This is the main idea, though there's obviously a lot happening in our text. This is the main idea that's being developed in 4, 5, and 6. This distinction that God makes between the Israelites and the Egyptians. God wants the Egyptians to know that they are not his people. And that he makes a distinction between them and those that are his own. But God wants his own to know that there is nothing special in them which caused him to set his love upon them. Some applications that we should make from this text and from these truths. First, God still makes a distinction between those who are his and those who aren't. We are not ethnic Jews. We are not part of that theocratic state of Israel which was formed at Sinai after being led out of Egypt in the Exodus. We are Gentiles. And so in the delineation that's made in this text between Jews and Gentiles, we would actually be outsiders if we're operating in these categories. But as we have seen repeatedly throughout various texts over the last few years, God has made believing Gentiles insiders together with believing Jews to form a people of God which the Old Covenant people of God just prefigured and typified and foreshadowed. There is a nation that God is forming of believing Jews and Gentiles together as one body in Christ Jesus in the covenant of grace. And those people are the true insiders. God's dealings with Israel as a theocratic nation on the basis of the Mosaic covenant are finished. As Hebrews 8 tells us, that covenant is obsolete. So the insiders today are not the ethnic Jews and the outsiders, the Gentiles. The insiders are those who belong to Christ Jesus. 
Those who are of faith, as we even saw even this morning in our exposition of John, who are blessed together with Abraham and men of faith. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. The insiders, the family of God, the sons, are the believers, whether they're Jews or whether they're Gentiles. Those are God's covenant people. And God still makes a distinction between those who are His, His covenant people, and those who aren't, those who are outside. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 to 8 says this, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Doesn't that sound a lot like this throwing up of the soot from the kiln and then breaking out as boils upon the oppressors? God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Doesn't that sound a lot like the Exodus? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, as the Egyptians of old did not know God, and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, those who harden their hearts against the proclamation of Yahweh's greatness and Yahweh's glory and Yahweh's superiority over all other gods. You see, the appearance of Christ is to grant relief to us, but to afflict those who afflicted us. You see, God makes the distinction. Today, even in his dealings with us in these new covenant times, when the old covenant is obsolete and there is no significant distinction between Jew and Gentile, when there are just believers in Christ who are in, who belong to God's covenant people, and unbelievers who are out, God still makes a distinction between those who are in his covenant and those who aren't. Those who are his covenant people and those who aren't. <laughs> Beware, lest you be found to be an Egyptian on that last day. Take refuge in the meantime under the wings of Yahweh, the God of Israel. God calls to those yet outside, yet outside the covenant. Hear the words of Jesus. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. As Rahab, who was not a Jew, joined herself to the people of Israel after they had left Egypt and as they were coming into the promised land, she forsook the gods of her people. She forsook her ethnic and cultural solidarity with pagan nations and joined herself to Israel. She took refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. 
this is not a new thing that God would be willing to accept those from the outside to become insiders. As Rahab took shelter under the wings of Yahweh, the God of Israel, unbeliever, Egyptian, so to speak, come to take refuge in Yahweh, the God of Israel. The reason that this is proclaimed to you now, or one reason that this is proclaimed to you now, is that you may take heed before it's too late and turn and repent. Consider how many times Yahweh warned Pharaoh and escalated the plagues more and more and more. It's hypothetical, obviously, but imagine if Pharaoh had listened and became a worshiper of Yahweh. And we can only speculate about these things. But surely it's better than drowning in the Red Sea with your army. Yahweh, even in the midst of his judgment, is gracious so often to proclaim warnings. If you are an Egyptian, so to speak, Heed the warnings that Yahweh gives you about what happens to those outside of this covenant in the end. And hear him calling you. Come to me, all who are weary and are heavy laden. Come to me, all who hunger and who thirst. Eat of the bread from heaven. Drink of the living water. Let whoever is thirsty, it's revelation, says, come. Buy milk and wine without money, without price. It's true, you know. Whosoever will may come. Listen, God makes a distinction between his people and those who are not his people. But as the book of Hosea teaches us, and the book of Romans picks up, those who are once not my people may be called my people. So come to Jesus. Take refuge in the God of Israel, Yahweh. Turn from Beelzebub and whatever other God you currently pledge allegiance to. Doesn't have to be a little statue of wood or stone or whatever else. It could be power. It could be sexual gratification or some kind of other sensory pleasure. It could be career. It could be materialism. Whatever else it is that you serve, turn from those things to serve the living God. Identify yourself with his people. Put faith in his promises. His provision of a savior, of a rescue through Jesus. And you will not be on the outside in the end, but on the inside. That's the first application. God still makes a distinction. Prepare to be on the inside when that distinction is finally and irreversibly made. Second, being in God's covenant is all of grace. This is as true in these times, in the covenant of grace, and at this stage of redemptive history as it was of the old covenant, 
Christian, why are you a Christian? Because you were impressive and God wanted you on his team, so to speak? Because you were wiser than your friends and family members who are presently persisting in unbelief? No, Christian. It's all of grace. The Bible teaches that God chose us, each one individually, as he chose the Israelites of old. Not for any consideration of our merit or worthiness or potential or savability. For we, like God said of the Israelites in Deuteronomy 9, we are a stubborn people. Don't begin to say to yourself, it is because of my righteousness. Nah, not because you are a numerous people, an impressive people. You are the fewest of people. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. Do not be haughty then toward the Egyptians, but remember, there go I but for the grace of God. Third, if God makes a distinction between those who are his people and those who aren't, shouldn't we also? Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 16 and verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Can you say the same about your brothers and sisters? God knows our flaws and our failings and our sins and our iniquities and set his love upon us anyway. To use the language of Deuteronomy 7. Should we not also then set our love upon one another? Christian love and church unity should not be based upon performance but upon covenant bonds. As God loved these people because of the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As God loves us because of his covenant with his son, Christ Jesus. Shouldn't we also love one another because of God's covenant with his son, Christ Jesus? Christ has bound us to himself and to one another. We all know, if we look inside our own hearts, we all know that it's true that we are stubborn people. We all know if we look around at one another and we live together long enough and we engage meaningfully enough, we know that we've got problems. But can we still draw this distinction between those who are inside God's covenant and those who are outside and say, I love those who are inside? my brothers and sisters in Christ, those to whom Christ has bound himself, I also bind myself to. I set my love upon them for Christ's sake. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. There is a distinction, first application. Make sure you're on the inside. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to call both Jews and Gentiles 
to faith in himself, to trust that his life, his death, his resurrection were sufficient to accomplish our salvation. He ascended and from on high he will return to gather to himself his people. And to gather out of that kingdom those who are not his people. He beckons all in the meantime who will come to come and be his people. If you're on the outside, come in. We invite you, we welcome you, we want you. That's the first application. The second is being in God's covenant is all of grace. Don't let the doctrine of election and God's choosing and being in make you proud. Realize that you would be just as hard-hearted as Pharaoh unless God had caused you to be born again to a living hope, as the Apostle Peter was. Third, if God makes a distinction between those who are his people and those who are not his people, and he sets his love upon his people in a special way, shouldn't we also? Let's do that. Let's sing in response now a song that weaves together these three threads. Christian unity in the covenant of grace, the, the graciousness of the grace in which we stand, and our call to the world to take shelter under the wings of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Oh, how good it is, number 332, in hands of grace.